verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. For me, it's um, a pleasure. It's great to be here um, at Advent Hope today. Thank you, pastors Todd, Kyle, Nick, for the invitation. We're actually doing this same series on the essentials also at the 11th Street Historic Manhattan Church. Uh, so it's been a blessing also there with, uh, with that congregation in that community. And um, I know that we've um, delved in the last few weeks um, into the essentials of faith, of Christian faith. We've seen um, what sin is. We've seen who God is. We've seen what the law is. And today, we're going to spend some time in looking into the church and answering, trying to answer the, the question of what the church is. If you were to refer to the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs and to see what uh, they say about the church, you would find this definition. It says, the church is God's family on earth, serving, celebrating, studying, and worshiping together. Looking for Jesus as its leader and redeemer, the church is called to take the good news of salvation to all. Would you, would you agree with that statement that the church is God's family on earth? I think it makes, it makes sense, right? believe that we come here together as a body of believers, as a group of people who have values, principles, and beliefs, and have built our lives onto that and build one another. In the Bible, and that is the perspective that we're looking at the church today, in the Bible we're presented with a number of metaphors of what the church is. One of those metaphors is the metaphor of the body. So the church tells us that the church is the body of Christ. It's a community of faith of which Christ himself is the head. How many have we heard, how many times have we heard that um, definition, right? That we are the body and Christ is the head. Well, if you open the Bibles with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to read a verse, um, a passage from this uh, text, uh, verses 12 and 31. And I'm going to refer to the version of the message of, of, of the translation or the transliteration of the Bible. So 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 31, in reference to this metaphor, the metaphor of church being the body. The Bible says, you can easily enough see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells. But no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to be independently call our own shots. But then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he, Christ, has the final say in everything. 
that is what we proclaimed in word and in action when we were baptized. Each of us is now a part of his resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at one fountain, his spirit, where we all come to drink. The old labels we once used to identify ourselves, like labels like Jew or Greek, slave or free, are no longer useful. We need something larger and more comprehensive. So from, from the beginning of time, believers, what we refer to today as the church, have always had this understanding that we are an organic entity, like a body, and that we have a purpose, we have a function. And as parts of the same body, we are to fulfill that, that purpose and that function in our own reality, in our own lives. But we work together as a body. Another um, metaphor that the Bible uses to refer to the church is that of the family. The church is God's family adopted by him. So as his children, its members live on the basis of the new covenant. So if, you, if we go to the Bible for that, um, we would refer to Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 and on. The Bible uh, compares, and not just in this text, but in other parts of the Bible, the church to a family. For this reason, the Bible says in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So it's a family that has a name, and the name of that family is Jesus Christ. Paul says he prays to God that he would grant you part, participants in this family according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man or woman that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend all with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So being part of the church, of this family, is being able to live this life of growth, of building one up and building our other members of the family up in love. Just as every uh, family, the church can also be very dysfunctional. Um, and the church is actually a social structure. And as with every other social structure that goes through the different phases, the church also goes through the different phases of, of, it, of, of its construct as a social structure. So if you, if you were to uh, refer to or ask sociologists, they would tell you that every structure, social structure, goes through three phases. The first one is the formation of the structure. So let's say, for instance, a group gets together and say, we need to plant a church. And these are the reasons of why we need to plant a church. We see a broken community, we see uh, broken lives, and we want to be a blessing to this community as well as to receive a blessing for ourselves. So you come together with the best intention, which is to build this church, to plant this church. But then as every other st social structure, 
the church will go through the first phase, which is the object, objectification. So you will find a purpose, a mission, um, a, a vision, and you will objectify exactly that, your purpose, your reason of being. So after the objectification phase, you would, the church also goes through the phase of internalization. So you internalize all those values and principles, but because the church is based and is comprised by us human beings um, that are flawed, that are sinful, the church also becomes a sinful social structure. And whatever is internalized becomes also dysfunctional. And then when you go through the third phase of um, the construct of reality, the construct of, the, of a social structure, which is the externalization, the subproduct or the, the subculture that is produced as a result is also sinful and it's imperfect and it's flawed. And this is where we come in. Although we come together and we have the best intentions in being within the church, in being with this, this social structure, in being with this, within this family, we still realize that we are sinful and that even the structure that we've organized and that we put together has become sinful and is externalizing a sinful subculture. However, the church being compared as a family prompts us to treat one another as you would treat your family members. It is in a loving environment that we are able to grow. It is in a loving environment that we are able to learn, to learn from our mistakes. So it is in an environment where there is an understanding of the width, the length, the depth, and the height of the love of Christ, of the love of God, that we can have some hope for our families and for our own family as a church. Another uh, metaphor that the Bible uses for the church is the bride. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, um, the Bible says, I am Paul is writing and he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I am promised you to one, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Time and time again in the scriptures, we see that this body, this family, the church, is also compared to a bride. What comes to mind is those verses that Jesus left uh, to his listeners, to his readers, and to us today as well, when he says, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. You remember those verses? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me that I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And when that is done, I'm coming back to receive you for where, for, so that you will live with me where I am. Those words, those verses were given within a context, a cultural context of the times in which Jesus lived in, in the biblical times. And it's interesting because they are given within the context of marriage. You see, back in those days when uh, two families got together and they had a young man and a young woman and wanted to marry them, they would just come together for dinner 
and they would discuss the, the details. So uh, very seldom people fell in love. When they did, they would go to mom and dad and say, I, I love that girl or I love that boy. So go and talk to their parents. Uh, get the transaction going so that we can get married. So they would come together, families would come together and they would promise the young people to one another. So they would, what we refer to today is engagement. They would engage to one another. And then they would go their separate ways. They would set a date for the wedding in the near future, but they would go their separate ways and they would work so that they would be ready and prepared for the wedding. So the, the, the groom, he would typically go in and build a house. He would build a, a house, either a, a little studio adjacent to his parents, to his father's house, or a, a, a one-bedroom apartment. Or he would, if, if he could afford, he would build a whole new house. So when that time had arrived, then that groom would go back to the bride, to the promised bride, to take her as his wife. And then together they would live in his house that he had just built. So when Jesus is saying, you are the bride and I am the groom, and when he's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled, what he is referring to is to the engagement transaction that just happened. He's saying, I've come here this first time so that we can get engaged but I'm going back to my father's house. And in my father's house, I don't need to build an adjacent studio or a one-bedroom apartment. I have mansions. And when, when that is ready, I will come back to take you so that you will live with me in my father's house for eternity. Throughout the scriptures, we see that the groom, the bride is waiting for the groom. And that is the metaphor that is used for you and for me as the church. This reminds us of the purpose that we're given as a body, as a family, as the bride. As the bride, our purpose is to wait for the wedding day, to wait for the groom, to be ready for that day and to invite as many into the festivities as possible. Another metaphor that those scriptures use for the church to refer to the church is a building. In 1st um, Corinthians uh, chapter 3 verses 9 through 9, 10, and 11, the Bible refers to the church, to this body, to this family, uh, to, to this bride also as a building. We often think that the church is the actual building of comprised of the walls and the roof. But what the Bible says is that the real church is being a temple that is made up of, of living stones. So in this uh, passage, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he continues in verse 16, saying, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple 
and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Isn't that beautiful? To know that the church is actually you and me. We are the stones. We are the living stones that form the temple, which is the church. Another metaphor that the Bible uses to refer to the church is a gathering. And taken from um, today's scripture reading, uh, the, the, the text of emphasis from Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So the truth is that yes, church happens when we come together, but church happens anytime there two or three come together in the name of Christ. You come together to fellowship with God, you come together to bless one another, and you come together to bless the community where you are. I had a, an interesting upbringing. I was born and raised atheist, and so was my, my family. Not because we wanted to, but we didn't have much choice. I was born in Albania, and Albania was one of the only atheist countries in the world. It was communist for over 48 years, right after, this, right after Second World War. One of the many things that communism did, um, apart from the, all the brainwashing and all the doctrinating and all the fear and, and keeping people subjugated, was to control them in a way that um, they would know exactly, the government would know exactly what you were supposed to say and even to think. So they would control everything. We, um, one of the things that, that happened in, in my, in my um, country was that our dictator thought that our regime of communism was to be perfect and not to be modeled by the other countries, some of them even neighboring countries. So uh, he considered the um, Russian communism as not being as pure, the Chinese communism not as good, the Cuban, don't even think about it, the, the, former, Yugos, the former Yugoslav uh, Federation, no, 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 that's a no, no, no. They were corrupt in all of their ways. So they, he set forth with his leadership to construct this regime that was perfect and that was perfectly built on the pillars of communism. Lenin, Stalin, Engels, and Marx. And if it wasn't clear in everything that people lived and that people did, then it was corrupt. So they broke off relations and, and diplomatic relations and economic relations with all of them. In 1967, they introduced this bill in the Constitution that made Albania the only atheist country in the world. So by law, in our Constitution, we were prohibited to believe in God. 
we were, we were prohibited to, to express any kind of um, uh, religious expression. This was very different from the other communist or socialist countries, even in Europe. They would control, they would meddle in churches and religions business, but never ban, completely ban. So Albania was the only country that actually banned religion. Churches were destroyed, mosques were destroyed. Uh, those that had uh, some historical value were transformed into museums and um, cultural centers, as they would call them. When I would ask my parents, what is God? They didn't know. And even if they knew, they weren't allowed to teach me or to tell me what God was. So it was only after the collapse of communism that I came across to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, to the Bible, to God, to Jesus, and to what he had done. And not only I realized that that was a way of controlling me, as was everything else, all the propaganda that the government used to control and to keep us subjugated. When I started going to the church and I learned about God and the Bible, I came across um, an elderly lady in her, in her 80s. Her name was Meropi. Meropi was a survival of communism, and she was a Seventh-day Adventist believer. She became a Christian in the 30s, and she endured and survived all of the dictatorship of communism, all of the, the period of the war, the six years of the war, and then subsequently uh, the communist regime. And she would tell us stories of how she was the only notion of church that people in her community could ever come across with. She wanted to be able to bless her community. So what she did is she, she got herself a Bible. <clears throat> but the only thing is, the only Bible that she could find was a Bible in Greek. So she said, okay, now I have to learn Greek so that I can read the Bible. So she, she goes out and she learns Greek uh, just so she can read the Bible. And then she goes back and she is seeing her neighbors, her friends, and her relatives, her family struggle. These are broken people who are under a lot of stress and pressure, emotional, psychological, spiritual, name it, all of them. You couldn't, you were taught not to trust anyone. You couldn't trust anyone. You couldn't trust your own flesh and blood because they could give you up to the authorities as it had happened many times. So these are broken people, but broken people for years and decades. Traumatic events that continue to pile up in their lives. And Meropi has to be the church to these people. Meropi, this lady who had never even had the chance to have been baptized. So one thing she does every time that she would gain their confidence and that 
she knew where her friends or her neighbors were and what a, a fragile state they were in, she would take this small pieces of paper and she would translate little verses from the Bible, from Psalms, promises of the Bible, from her Greek Bible, she would translate them into Albanian and give them over to her friends at the, at the time that she thought would be safe. Many people learned about God through that, through those little verses that she wrote on those small pieces of paper. Many people were, were transformed, accepted God, and became part of the church because of Merope's witnessing and work. So sometimes the church is the unseen, the secret, the subversive church. What should, the, what should the church be like? There is enough in the Bible to tell us what the church should be like. Jesus taught us through his theology of parables of what the church should be like. The church is an extension of the kingdom. And if we want to see how we should be as a church today, we can refer to what Jesus meant when he spoke about the kingdom. And the way that Jesus depicted this in the Gospels is through parables. All of the parables that Jesus, uh, uh, that are recorded in the Gospels, they can be um, grouped in six, they, they can be grouped in, this, in, 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 in six sections. Um, the first one, the first group of, of parables is those, are those parables that explain what God is like and what He wants from humanity. So in, those, in that group of parables, you have the ones such as the lost coin, the prodigal son, the workers in the vineyard. They all proclaim the story of a loving father king. The second group of parables deals with the struggle between God and Satan, what we refer to as the great controversy, right? In this group, you have parables such as the hidden treasure, the pearl. Um, you, those stress the fact that the kingdom of God is in our midst. It is spreading throughout the world and into the hearts of people. The third group of parables proclaim the message of God's kingdom is here on earth now, but only in a partial way. Have you realized that Jesus in his parables and in his teachings, when he talks about the kingdom, he says, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is near, and the kingdom is here. So you always see those three and you kind of ask, which one is it? Is the, is the kingdom coming? Is it here? Is it near? But the truth is, is all of them. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is here, partially here, through his people, through his church, through you and me, and fully when he returns with all his glory. The fourth set of parables deals with the attitude of God towards the entrance into the kingdom. So, um, you have parables in that group, such as the, the great banquet or the friend at midnight, 
uh, or the tasks of the, the servants, the lost sheep, the sower, the two sons, and the wedding banquets. And all of those parables, they show that God will exclude no one from the kingdom, but that people choose to exclude themselves. The fifth group of the parables is uh, the series of, of parables that exposes the radical difference between the kingdom of God and our daily experience. So we are the church, we are the body, we are this family, we are this gathering, we are the bride, we are an extension of the kingdom. What does it look like to be in the kingdom? How different is it from what it used to be before, from where we used to be before? And so in that group of parables, you have, for instance, the Good Samaritan that goes against all odds and expectations because he does not belong to this generation, to this kingdom, but he belongs to the kingdom of God that is coming, that is near, and that is here. The final group of parables is, deals with how one enters into the kingdom. And these parables, they teach that the entrance into the kingdom can only happen through one way, which is by believing in Jesus Christ. And in that parable, you have the story of the, uh, the tenants, and you have, for instance, the other parable of the wise and the foolish builders. All of those to show, to tell us what it is to be the church, what it is to be an extension of the kingdom. If we were to speak to our generation today, to our reality today, what the church should be today, where you live, I would pick one verse from Jeremiah 29, verse 7, and it says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God was speaking to the people of Israel who, was, who were being taken into exile in Babylon. They were there already. And he's saying, you go out there and you live your life to the fullest. You live your life to the fullest. That's what it means to be an extension of the kingdom. You live your life to the fullest, but live it by seeking the peace, the prosperity of the community where you are, of the city where you are. Seek the shalom. That word shalom in, in the Bible, in the, in the, in the Hebrew um, mindset, biblical mindset, it's not just lack of conflict or friction, just as we, we refer to it and we say, oh, everything is well at home because we're not fighting. Everything is at peace at home. We're not fighting. That's not how the Bible understands shalom and how the Bible understands peace and prosperity. Shalom in the Bible is the full flourishing of all areas of life. It's bringing wholeness to where you are. So what that means is that the apartment building where you live needs to be a better building because you are there, because you are the church, you are the body, you are the family, you are the gathering, you are the bride. It means that the street where you live needs to be a better street because you live there. It means that the boarding school or the classroom where you study has to be a better place 
because you are the church to that community. You're bringing shalom where shalom is falling short. You bring wholeness and flourish all areas of life of that community. My prayer for us as individuals, but also as a body of believers, as the church, is that this verse, these words may be true in our reality, may be true in the reality of Advent hope. May God bless us. Amen.